This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Andrew and Rachel Wilson, the authors of The Life We Never Expected. They share the emotional, spiritual, and familial hardships that come along with parenting two special needs children and one neurotypical child. They talk about turning to God again and again and choosing to trust His goodness in the midst of hardships. They also share some of the gifts God has given them through parenting children with regressive autism. Our conversation is real and deep and filled with the grace of God. So consider who in your life would be encouraged by today's conversation. Maybe it's a mom with special needs children. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's an aunt who wants to serve her autistic niece or nephew. Maybe it's your pastor or neighbor. Will you text or email them today's episode as an encouragement? As we begin, I want to thank my friend, Whitney Weckner, for introducing me to Andrew and Rachel's story. I also want to thank her for the godly example she has been in my life. Thanks, Whitney. Good morning, Andrew and Rachel. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Yeah, lovely to see you. You guys are saying good morning, we are. but it's not really morning. <laughs> Tell everybody um, a little bit about yourselves, where you're at, your family, and what you find yourself doing. Because my kids, the first thing they said when I told them, I have an early interview, and they're like, what? I said, well, because <laughs> they are over, you know, and I was telling you all, you guys were in um, England, or is it Great Britain, whichever. And um, they're like, oh, we can't wait to hear their accent. Oh, that's <laughs> I don't love disappoint it. them. I'm pretty convinced the only time, the only reason Americans listen to my preaching is because I'm doing it with my accent. I, uh, people seem to think that you're making sense when you're. So I'm, I'm Andrew, Andrew Wilson. Um, I'm a teaching pastor at King's Church in London, but we live in a town called Eastbourne, which is just on the sea. So we're about a mile or two from the sea, speaking to you now, and in the on the south coast. And we we have three children uh, who I'm sure Rachel will say something about as well. And we wrote a book together called The Life We Never Expected, which I think is mainly the reason why we're having this conversation. I've I've written about a few other things as well. Um, And yeah, it's a joy to be with you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rachel. Yeah, so I'm Rachel. I grew up in Eastbourne. I've stayed in the town I was born in. Um, I'm a mum of three kids. Um, So our kids now are 11 Hang on. One of our kids is 11 tomorrow, in fact. So 11, 12 and five. So we've got Zeke, who's the oldest, Anna, who's our middle child and Sam, who we've actually had since we wrote the book. I remember my oldest is 11 and he just turned, well, he turned 11 back in March, but right after he turned 11, I was doing the same thing. People were asking my kids ages and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. He just turned 11 or no, wait, maybe he's still 10. And so it's like, he's he's a preteen basically. And that (laughs) says enough, right? Yeah. Yeah. So take me back to when you guys first became parents. Um, What did life look for you like for you then? Like as far as in work, family dynamics, you know, life at home, what did it look like? 
age gap between us. So I was 30 when Zeke was born and Rach was 23, I suppose, 24. And so, yeah, we, we were both in, in sort of in a leadership kind of part of a leadership team in a church. I was working with the church. I had just become, and we call them elders, a, a pastor in the church and university. You'd been university and then done a couple of years of work in a sort of regular job. And so we were just, we and we weren't really prepared for anything that subsequently happened. <laughs> I think that'd be fair to say. I'm not sure that parents ever are really uh, about just of children generally, but we were all set. I think we, we had recently decided that we were going to remain in Eastbourne for a few years. We felt like that was the right thing to do. We just moved house. Um, but yeah, we uh, up until Zeke was around one and a half or two, I don't think we had much inclination of what was coming. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. he was a really easy baby. Yeah. Um, so we had this really straightforward kind of fair experience of being a parent to a newborn. And so when he was nine months, uh, we got pregnant with our second child, Anna, because we just thought we've mastered this. We're, we're, we're great at this whole parenting <laughs> stuff. Um, so it was only really when Anna was born and in the years that followed that, that life just became a bit more complicated and mm-hmm. parenthood and motherhood, which we'd expected to be an exciting chapter in our lives, suddenly seemed to overtake of our lives yeah it is amazing right we are all the perfect parents with the perfect situation until something happens um and i think you're right i mean i think we just can't you can't imagine it until it's your life it's just the way that it is well so as your children became toddlers you did realize that you were parenting um, not only one but two special needs children and so as you think about those first few years how would you describe, you know, the physical, the spiritual, just the emotional? I know that's a, that's a big question, um, changes that you faced. I think physically, in terms of caretaking for them, that immediately became quite a challenge for me. So when Anna was born, Zeke still wasn't walking. And that was one of our first kind of red flags in terms of thinking, why is he struggling to walk so much? He would stand on his ankles and not put his feet flat. And then when he did learn to walk, he tiptoed. And so just physically, you're just carrying kids all the time, but you're also running after kids all the time. And they would, once they both learned to run, they would run in different directions. So it was a physically draining day as a mum and as a dad, I think. And the days started very early. So their sleep was very disrupted. So we would often start the day at kind of four in the morning and then we would keep going and just crash when the evening came. But as well as those physical challenges of just meeting their needs, you're also trying to process emotionally and spiritually the life you didn't really expect and didn't see coming and hadn't hadn't prepared for. So we were trying to navigate at the same time as trying to process some of the emotions and the grief that came really with um, so having some unmet expectations in parenting. Yeah. What about, what do you feel like when it spiritually, when you really started down that road of realizing my, my children are autistic. Um, they have different needs. I don't really know what my future is going to look like. What would you say spiritually, Andrew, maybe you can answer that one. Yeah. I, I think it was, it's probably kind of different with both of them. I, I think with, with Zeke, um, so I mean, I, I, your listeners may know anyway, but um, but probably not. So 
Zeke, they both had regressive autism. So the the real sadness of it was was not in a sense the the classic autistic diagnosis, although that's right. that can be very challenging as well. Lots of friends whose kids that's their experience. But for us, it was really the fact that the that the child got to eighteen months, two years, two and a half, and then went backwards developmentally. So that was the real uh, and that was having had it for with Zeke, who regressed for about nine months. We thought, okay, we're through this and. And and I think probably felt like, all right, this is going to be a, you know, a bit of a chat. We had that at the same time as we had Anna was sort of six, nine, 12 months. But I think I then thought that Anna would, would be, quote, you know, neuro, well, neurotypical or leave, lead a more normal kind of life as we understood it. And so for, for Zeke, in some ways, I didn't. I, it was very physically tiring, but I don't think I had the spiritual or perhaps quite the same emotional, you know, Rachel did. But I don't think I did. I then got had a massive sort of emotional apocalypse implosion when when Anna was diagnosed because having had it once and then thought now we're all we're, we're all good uh, Anna then not only regressed but she did it much much more so for much longer so for twice as long nearly 18 months and you could you she was just visit daily losing skills so one day she could make a star with her fingers the next day she couldn't she We've still got video of her singing a song, which she could never do now and hasn't been able to do since really. So loads of things like that where, and I think that was much more like, God, how can this possibly be good? How how could this ever be a, 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 a... Now, obviously that question in some ways presents itself for all manner of different trials in life. It just happened that in our lives, or at least in my life, that was the one that it, that prompted it. And, and I, so in some ways, I don't think I'd realised the significance of what had happened to Zeke until it was already happening to Anna. Mm very withdrawn and very upset and very anxious and would burst into tears if someone laughed or cried or all sorts of things. So that was challenging, but I don't think, I don't recall having the kind of God why at that same, in the same way when Zeke was three, as I did when Anna was two and a half. And then I realized, wow, this is happening again. And actually a lot more so. And Anna to this day is, is really very disabled that she's, she's very limited in what she can do. Okay. Um, runs around, plays football, chats away, is, you know, like takes some exams. You know, I mean, he's much, you know, he's still definitely got a disability and you can see in all sorts of ways, but he, he's recovered well beyond what we expected. Whereas Anna is still a long way below what we had hoped at the age of three or four she would be. Yeah, I think there was a loneliness aspect with the second diagnosis. So with the first diagnosis, we had friends who had kids, had one kid with special needs and so we felt like we had people to copy and yes, to, to learn from whereas I think when Anna was diagnosed we didn't know anyone who had two kids with special needs and at that point we didn't think we'd be able to cope with having more children either um, so uh, there was a real loneliness in those few years of, of walking through a different family experience to what we'd expected. Yeah, well, and it brings me to want to ask the question, too. You guys m did end up having a third child who is neurotypical. That's, am yeah. I correct in that yeah, assumption? That's right. But I just want to ask you, Rachel, what was that thought process like in that experience when now you are pregnant again? Like, were there a lot of fears involved with that? Was that a planned pregnancy? Because I personally know that as a mom, it would be hard for me to not be afraid that this is going to happen again. And that has nothing to do with you not loving your children. Yeah. It's just, it's a sacrifice. Yeah. 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 It was something we talked about probably every week for four years. Um, we had a, we're both from big families. We had a really deep desire for a child, but there were all sorts of questions we had about 
whether we could manage it physically, financially, spiritually, maritally, um, <laughs> mental health wise, all those things actually were questions that we really had to work through. And I think we reached a real place of faith um, before trying for a third baby who's very much a planned um, pregnancy um, that we've reached a point of faith where we say God we believe you're going to bless us no matter what and we know you're going to go through this with us um, and we've got faith for whatever happens next having said that coming to that place of faith before you have a pregnancy it was really challenging particularly uh, once he was born uh, he was late to hit all of his milestones so we were really um, in a position we were praying a lot but I and having meltdowns on the sofa yeah in the, in the was, evening where we're yeah. like it's all happening we're both in tears yeah. it's all happening again it was just oh it's yeah traumatic to some extent you do work yeah. through trauma only yeah. a few years later God's been incredibly kind to us with really unexpected blessings not just with Sam not having to go through some of the challenges that the other two had to overcome in their early years um, but also in the relationship between our boys was something we never could have anticipated. Uh, they have a really close bond. And although the age gap is kind of seven and a half years, it feels much, like much less than that. And they are really good friends. And mm. so there's all these wonderful, unexpected blessings. Yeah. Uh, oh, I love that. And we are going to talk about that a little bit more as we move along. But there's something, Rachel, that early on... Um, that you said after your children were diagnosed, you said you read a Charles Spurgeon quote that said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And you said, I remember thinking I'll never get to where I can kiss that wave. Expound on that a bit. And you know, where you're at now when it comes to quote unquote, kissing that wave. Yeah, I remember being quite cross when I first saw that quote, thinking, not like Andrew said earlier, it wasn't about autism, it was a, specifically about regression, um, mm -hmm. that I just could not see the goodness of God in it. And I really, um, I remember reading that for the first time and thinking, I, like you say, thinking, I will never, I will never get there. And God's been so gracious to us in very gently and very slowly, um, just revealing himself in those early years, we talked a lot about the eternal qualities of God and the fact and we reached a point of faith that he would be eternally good and eternally faithful and that he had plans and providence and purposes that he was working out in our family um, in the light of eternity. Yeah. But really, like our testimony in recent years is that we've seen the goodness of God in the land of the living, like Psalm 27, really, because kind of ever so gently, God's just revealed the kindness of it. In, in giving in this plan which might not be a plan that I had chosen initially but it's a better plan and a better story than I would have written for our family and our children not only do they have wonderful gifts and qualities in themselves they draw out the gifts and qualities in other people in ways that I never could have expected so our particularly our daughter in many ways is quite vulnerable and quite needy and she has drawn out compassion and love and kindness and mercy from fellow church members. The church has been so accepting of her and people are just delighted when they hear her, the noises she makes or if she, she'll run on the stage every now and again while the worship band are playing. And she's added so much to the local church as well. So in kind of in the God's big spreadsheet, 
the fruits of the spirit have been drawn out, not just in our children, but in the people that have come into our lives around them as well. Wow. Isn't that interesting too, because it's like you said, you can't know it until it's a part of your lived experience. And no matter who talks about it or tells you about it until it's a part of your reality, you just can't fully know it. And, and I think about some work that I did when I was a young um, adult, still single, and I worked in the special needs ministry at our church, which is a very large church, um, a very active access ministry. And um, it was such a gift in so many ways. But I remember meeting my husband and he was so nervous to like enter into this world right. because it's just... Um, you know, you don't know. And wow, once he did, and I just said, listen, just be there, just be there, pay attention. And as you're there and you start engaging with different people and their families, you're going to see something that you just can't imagine. And he did, he fell in love with so many of the adults that we served because they did, they, they brought something different to our lives, to the church, um, really to everyone around them. And so I love that you shared that because we can't experience those things without those types of quote unquote, what we would sometimes say are challenges. Um, and so with that said, Andrew, you guys in the life we never expected wrote a lot about lament. And it's interesting to think about now because I feel like people are talking a little bit more about it. But when you wrote this book, I mean, it was people just didn't know how to grieve and lament. And we're always, as Christians, trying to like rush through it and missing the point sometimes. And so tell me what that period was like for you. And what do you mean by lament when we think about it from, you know, a biblical perspective, your family dynamics and so on? Yeah. So my, my emotional reactions already were not very healthy on this. I, I think we're, we're very differently wired. Rach would take a little installment of sadness every day for 50 years and I would get it in 10 minutes or, or an hour or and I had several of those sort of just like meltdowns and that's just yeah. partly personality and, and some of it's immaturity and so in terms of processing the emotion of it get hit with a very intense bit and then often by the next day or even later that, that same day might be okay we're going to get through this sort of thing I think lament though is as a practice is almost independent of which end of the spectrum you're on on personality I think lament is is the act of bringing those emotions to God in prayer and expressing them to him in a way that pours out the emotion you have, but does it by doing it to him and using often using specific scriptures to, to do that because scripture is full of them and far more than our modern song lists or whatever would be uh, very rich packed with laments and, and then using that source of language and those sorts of idioms and images to be able to lay before God what you know Habakkuk calls it my complaint you know that I, this is what I, I'm just I'm bummed about this like I want to come and say what is happening here yeah. and I is in a sense is doing that but in doing it you're doing you're performing an act of faith because you're saying God I'm going to bring this to you I'm not going to put it on Facebook I'm not going to just process which is not to say that you can't say that something bad's happened on Facebook but it, it's that's not the primary place where I'm going to try and get this dialogue with somebody who understands i'm not going to look primarily to my 
friendship circle or my social media world or whatever, I'm going to come to my father and I'm going to tell him what's gone wrong. And so I think lament in that sense can be practiced by somebody who's, who has a little bit of sadness every day echoing through somebody who has a huge apocalyptic response anywhere in between, because it's, it's a decision to really mm-hmm. to take it in prayer. And I think to, in some ways to, you know, to take the, even the structure of the Lord's prayer um, and to come and say, you know, Lord, I ask that your name will be made. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done, but this isn't that at the moment. So please God, what do you, and that might, that's a more sort of positive prayer to pray. But I think sometimes lament is much more basic than that. It's simply, God, I don't understand. This is horrible. I hate this has happened to her and to me, if I'm honest, it's self, some of it's selfish, but some of it's just like, why? Mm-hmm. And so I think in that sense, it's a it's a good discipline for the Christian. And if we don't learn it in this, we would have had to learn it in something else because there's so much sad stuff. And as you say, even in the last five years, quite a lot of I think probably things have happened, even which just prompted the church to become more adept at using those kind of prayers. But in our context, that wasn't something we'd done much of before. Yeah, well, and just to push into that a little bit, why do you think that we feel like we need to rush through this grieving? Because I feel like even internally, as you know, I may lament over something, you know, for example, a relationship in my life that's been broken for a long time, we can be, and I do uh, grieve it, lament over it to God regularly but it's so hard sometimes to let anybody else know that because everybody wants to fix it. Everybody wants to kind of hurry you along. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, just that hurrying process and kind of maybe how we can draw back a little bit and stop telling people to just get over it? It's quite deep within us, isn't it? To want to narrate a particular story in our own lives or in somebody else's life to act as the narrator and to say oh this happened because of this or to silver line it or feel like we have to defend God's Mm. honor and say oh it's okay because of this or if this hadn't happened this never would have happened Um, and it can be really hard as Christians in those moments with friends and family to sit back and go no God's a good narrator let's trust him over time in the course of history in the course of life our lifetimes and generations he will be faithful he will be good I the pressure on me is not on me to narrate this experience as and to have a testimony ready for Sunday morning we rush others through it too I think we where we are trying to rush it ourselves because we want to get there and we also want to rush other people through it sometimes because their own ambiguity and struggle is difficult for us in that you know i see a friend of mine experiencing something really tragic and it raises questions about god for me or it raises questions about is that going to happen to me and i almost want to reassure myself that there's a story here that makes sense of it and fits and right now it's all right back to happy back to happy you know and uh, come and i'm very like that because i'm quite a, I, i'm quite an upbeat person and I, I want everyone to be smiling all the time and so i think to to, to live with that and to be forced as it was for me, every time you just hear the noise at 4am or something, and I just go back and it's like, oh, it's this again. Mm-hmm. And, and then be up for the day, just like th- thinking through it. I, I think it was almost like daily reminders, like you can't expedite this. You, you want to, but you can't, and you can't do it for yourself and you actually can't, and mustn't do it for others because now th- there's a place of course for saying, I want to stand with you, but I, I do think you now need to go and do something different. I don't think you can just wallow in self-pity. So there's obviously some of that as well, but right. I, often think that's not the side we miss i think the side we miss is sometimes allowing people to be sad 
and yeah. to say this is really, really hard. And I don't know what God is doing, and I don't know whether or not it'll ever turn out to good, and I don't know whether it will get better. Uh, but yeah. I'm going to be in there, and uh, I'll still be here tomorrow. And oh. I think that is often w- what's needed of us as friends and, and, in my case, pastors of people to help stand with people through that, even if it doesn't change and get better. Yeah, definitely that over everything happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't say that to people. <laughs> yeah. no. no. It's like, ah, okay, moving on. Um, so research does show that there is a huge percentage of Christian families with kids with special needs that end up, you know, leaving, not leaving the church, but unable to attend the church. And so how are you able to keep regular church attendance, first of all, a priority in your family? And then secondly, you know, what are some ways you feel like the church can provide support for special needs families so that at least on a regular basis, families can still attend and be involved? Well, it's interesting. You mentioned about being part of a ministry in a large church and that's fantastic when that works that's something that's quite new to our church we're probably a middle-sized church here in Eastbourne um, but we hadn't had a special needs ministry and for our son that was two or three years ago that starting up was really helpful because there was some structure and it wasn't complicated it was very catered around the children that were there it didn't have all the kind of bells and whistles, uh, but it allowed him to access kids work, which then allowed me to access church as well. Um, and I think I talked to you about Anna uh, running on the stage. So worship times could be quite stressful. And I hugely appreciated people's warm welcome to her. So I think having a warm welcome to, to worship services being disrupted, like with crying babies or anything else, um, is fantastic. For Anna, actually, though, the church ministry um, wasn't the right fit in that she's now quite big and she can open any door (laughs) and And run and run. What was a complete game changer for us was one person in the church becoming a one to one and committing to do it every single week. Mm. We tried to have a rotor system and that didn't work because of the lack of consistency and routine for her. We have two services. So she would go to one service for herself and then the next service would help her. Yeah. So she's actually a trained occupational therapist as well. But more than that, actually, it wasn't really about that. It was just that she really loved Anna and she had a really good connection with her. And our church life would not work without this woman. Um, Mm. She's someone who's really integral to our family now, not just to our church life. Um, I wish we haven't been to church in person for as a family for 14 or 15 months, but we've still been seeing Jen like yeah. every every Sunday morning at the time we would normally see her at church with Anna because that's yeah. just worked so well. I think we're about to enter a new season in terms of navigating special needs ministry because here in the UK, um, lockdown rules are still quite strict. And so we have our next phase is how, okay, so how do we get Anna back into church? We've just been able to do that a little bit with the boys. Um, but getting her back in with social distancing, any parent listening with a special needs child and two meter rule um, will know that that is that is hard to navigate. Uh, so that's going to be our next challenge, I think, this this coming summer. Yeah. Well, and so maybe one of the things, too, with a smaller church is just really beginning to pray for a couple of those people to rise up that have that one on one connection, because That's the thing. I mean, that I noticed in a smaller church, it can almost be harder because 
it's harder to have, you know, like, oh, this classroom is just yeah. for someone uh, who maybe does have a special needs child or adult child um, because you don't have as many volunteers to go around. And so trying to navigate that can be even a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And I think often into church leaders can feel the pressure to create a one size fits all um, system. And we've really appreciated sometimes just individual church members recognizing the gifts and qualities in our kids, building a connection with them. That's been the, that's been what's really helped. Um, and you really, I think sometimes you can overcomplicate it with special needs ministry. You're looking at the person who's standing right in front of you. That's whose needs you're trying to meet rather than trying to meet every single person who might potentially walk through the door. You can mm. be time goes on, at least in a church our mm. size. Yeah, that's a good point. Like we don't have to plan for what's going to happen for the next two years, but let's let's do what we need to do right now for what's in front of us. Yeah. Well, so this is for really either one of you or both. You know, special needs parenting, um, it, it is a full-time job. The, some of these questions, like I told you before, came from one of my dear friends, Whitney, who has special needs children. She, she just has a lot of children. So they're always navigating that. And, and you guys have kind of talked about this in your church, but finding a babysitter, a caregiver, um, that can be impossible sometimes in seasons. And so how have you guys navigated through um, just trying to keep your marriage healthy, you know, dating one another, some boundaries, even with pouring into your neurotypical child. Do you have maybe some words that you would share with us about that? Or, um, you know, just any, any tips, really? Yeah, I think my what I would love to say is that we had reached a solution in terms of childcare um, that was going to stay the same, whereas I find that we have to we find something that works, we find someone that works, and it will work for two, maybe if we're lucky, two years. It tends to be a lot of our childcare is done by student nurses or people who are at university and then they graduate. And so the, you then have to start again afresh with somebody new. But going through that cycle of trying to find people is definitely worth it because we've that's enabled us to have boundaries in our marriage and some time away. Um, which has became really important, particularly once they're older too, when they were at their most demanding, my parents lived nearby and kindly stepped in and gave us two nights away a year. And that helped, but we've also needed more regular time together than that. And so that's been dependent upon finding often not one person, but we've had to find two people who will work together because Anna needs one-to-one and then now we can get by with the boys having one other person, but those two people obviously need to be working together all the time. So it's a lot of time just on the calendar app on my phone, trying to fill, um, yeah. just doing administration. It's, it's an administration challenge, it. isn't it? That, that's for uh, at the moment. That's the uh, and it, it, I think it varies because we probably had times where it might have been a primarily a financial challenge, and sometimes it's a recruitment challenge, and sometimes it's just a logistical faff <laughs> lots of time all of which falls on rachel rather than on me by the way <laughs> um so i just sort of breeze oh who's looking after them today you know but uh yeah but i i do think as and most people probably don't need persuading to do this but i i do think that committing saying this is our long-term health as a family is dependent on some measure of time without these guys 
dominating our day. Like, and, and in, as I said, that was, as I said, that was, we did two, you know, two nights away once a year for several years when it was at its most difficult. And that was, that was all it was. Obviously, we had a lot of time together in the evenings when the children were asleep, but that was the only time we had like that. But it made an enormous amount of difference. And we still do it, even though in some ways it's less pressing and urgent because our, yeah, our marriage will not do well. And our, our kids in the end won't do well if we don't make a priority of it. But it, is, it has been, yeah, it, and often it doesn't last two years. Most of it doesn't last two years, does it? People are around, something works for nine months, 12 months. We had somebody live with us for two years, with us for a year. That that, that was the solution for a while. There's all sorts of things we've done. Sometimes we've divided and rules, put them in three, you have this one, you have this one. You have, we've done all kinds of things to try and make it work. And they've generally worked for a, a season and then we've had to reinvent things and I'm sure that'll happen again. And I think you mentioned about neurotypical child. We're really aware this is something we are going to have to learn and uh, we need wisdom from other people on this as well. It was interesting, a friend of mine has a son with Down syndrome. He's, he's about 25 now. He's the youngest of four children. And when he was born, she was told by a charity, your other three kids are gonna be absolutely fine. You need to put all of your focus onto to this son. He's gonna need all of your focus. And they decided to reject that advice and that that wasn't the right way forward. And I just found that really helpful as well. Mm we cannot do that there are situations in which Anna's needs in particular are likely to dominate and uh, to some extent we need to compensate for that as well by pouring into our sons with their differing needs as well well and Rachel I would ask you too because I know just being the mom of three kids in all very fortunate that they are neurotypical. I mean, the administrative task of that gets overwhelming even because (laughs) no matter, um, we're still trying to schedule like this person's doing this and that like, what are all the things? How do you find time to recharge and just say, okay, I know I need to make all these things a priority. So I've got to make sure that I get all of this scheduled for their childcare, so on and so forth. But I personally, you know, need to take time to spend with the Lord and just to recharge myself. Um, have you found making that a priority really valuable as well? It is something that I, I think I became really dependent upon those short times with God when things were really difficult. So it's something that came into um into play with like even lunchtime naps I try to make it the first thing that I did which is such a sacrifice because when if they do sleep in the day then um there's 20 different things that you should be doing with that time like if they're sleeping in the day uh so I I really tried to make just reading my bible or or worshipping often or reading a psalm I found it hard to focus because I was tired um, but I try to make that routine work. It has got easier since they've started school. I'm really fortunate. I've only just re-entered doing some paid work, um, but I'm fortunate to have been able to have the time they've been at school to have a bit more control over my day and to often leave the house. So it doesn't really work for me often to be at home <laughs> and to read my Bible. So that's been something that's frequently happened in a coffee shop or somewhere where I can't see the carnage around me. That's right. Sometimes you just got to get out, right? It's easy in your situation for lies. And I mean, for any parents to really sneak into our hearts. And so when you're parenting special needs kids, what are some of the gospel truths that you find helpful to remind yourself of most often when you enter a little bit of that oh, I'm just, you know, I don't want to deal with this anymore, or everybody else's life is easier, or, 
you know, whatever those lies are that we, we can speak over ourselves, no matter our situation, but that's very typical to the appearance of special needs children. So two that spring to mind for me are, I call them grace and eschatology. So I think with grace, the idea that basically I've got more than I deserve, not less than I deserve. Mm. That, that effectively thankfulness as the opposite of entitlement really that, that that if what you think you have is up here and what you think you deserve is down here then that gap is called thankfulness but if what you think you have is that down here and then what you actually have or, or you know what you think you deserve is up here then that gap is entitlement grumbling c- complaints and so on and I, and I think what happens in, with any any ch- kind of challenge in life, in our case, especially needs kids, is that your your view of what you you you're inc- tempted to believe that you deserve better than you've got, aren't you? And 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 it is fundamentally anti grace mindset. It's, it's fun- but you you're inclined to think I deserve what my friends have. And I, we were just saying the other night, of course. Now our kids are 12, 11 and five. All of our friends have had, you know, one of them, it was a cancer challenge. One of them, it might be more, you know, marriage challenge or a family challenge or a parent dying or also everybody goes through it. It just happens in our case that what the enemy does is at that point to go, right, you need to exaggerate how much you deserve and minimize what you have. And the, the gospel of grace is effectively trying to you know, force you to go, no, I don't deserve anything. And actually look how much I've been given. So I think that's one. And the other one is probably, do you want to talk about eschatology or hope? Or have you got another one you want to talk about? I think for me, one of the, when you were mentioning lies that's come around your head, I think for me, particularly with the children, Anna's had repeated regressions over the last few years. And it can feel like you're walking in circles. And this is pointless. And we're just back to the beginning again. And um, I've found it really helpful. I think Romans 5, when it talks about suffering, producing endurance, and an endurance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame. Mm-hmm. That's been a helpful promise in terms of going, we are not just walking in circles. God is doing something and he is producing fruit in our lives. And we are not back to square one because uh, that's a light I've really had to tackle, I think, with, with aggression particularly. Mm. Well, tell me when we just going back to how Sam and his brother, their relationship, um, how it's developed. And I love that they have a special bond. You know, it's interesting because my two boys, I have boy, girl, boy as well. And they're five and a half years apart. And um, once I brought my oldest son into a hybrid model school where he goes to school two days a week, but then he's homeschooled three days a week. It was amazing to me to watch those two develop a relationship that I don't think they would have ever had had all three of my kids been in normal school because they just don't see each other. The gap is so big. So I love to hear that your boys have this special relationship too, but how does, um, how does Sam do with, his siblings, because as Whitney had said, they all love one another, but sometimes it is really exhausting to be the neurotypical kid with, you know, the brothers and the sisters that are just so needy. Mm. And so what have you guys found uh, just in their relationships and, and how you teach him to really deal with that and embrace it? I don't, I don't think Sam knows yet 
that mm. Zeke has special needs. Would you? Well, we, I'm not really sure, or whether he's quite he did, very aware of Anna. Anna's very obvious. He's been treating Anna like his little sister since he was about two or three. Yeah. So he would go back, you know, even when he was really quite little, he'd be going, "Anna, don't run in the road," or "Mum, you need to get." Anna. You know, so, he, and in fact, I think he has. Has he actually used the phrase "my little sister" once or twice? Well, if he draws a picture of the family, it's interesting. He puts himself as the middle child, but he does have this tight bond with Zeke. But do you um, think he knows? I mean. I think he's picking up on it because Zeke actually said, he said to me the other day, we were out on a dog walk and he said, Zeke's a flapper and Anna's a runner, but what am I? <laughs> and it was too deep a philosophical question for me to deal with well in the moment. Yeah. Um, How old is oh, he again? He's five, but yeah. being so kind to him, I think, in giving him a very resilient personality but it is tiring and I can see that he is going to need respite just like we need respite at some point and we're going to need a pattern of that for him as yeah. well um even things that like Anna really seeks him out uh, but she says the same thing over and over so she'll say tickle tickle and as soon as he's tickled her tickle 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 and he'll say oh mum I've tickled her I can't do it anymore so I think expecting him to get tired as well as us to get tired is fair and important yeah. and it's something we're going to have to adapt to as time goes on yeah yeah so in some ways i don't think the answer i don't think your question has an answer yet for zeke because i don't think he's that aware of it but that, i'd forgotten about that comment that's interesting but with anna he's been very aware of it for a while and I, yeah we, i think we just need to give him the space like we need to give ourselves yeah right and i mean gosh it just requires exponentially more intention i feel like um when you're the parents of special needs to what does this one need? How can I provide that? It's the emotional health of, of every person that matters. And so, Rachel, that does end up falling a lot more on you to make that plan. But, um, <laughs> well, as we begin to close out here, what are some of the greatest joys and gifts? You started out at the beginning just saying a little bit about the church and how it's really brought out the fruits of the Spirit in not just you guys, but in so many people in your congregation but um, what are some of the other greatest joys and gifts that you have received that you think you would have missed out on if you weren't the parents of children with regressive autism? I think the points of connection that you get, um, which you often have to work much harder for with kids with special needs. Um, sometimes I would set out to do an activity that I felt would be a bonding activity, things like baking together or going to this club or um, going to this place and eating cake together or something. And I just realised a friend of mine really helped me with giving the image of a tennis match where she was saying almost every time you're initiating, it feels like you're you're serving the ball into a part of the court where they're just they're not there. And you them initiate and to enter their world rather than demanding that they enter yours all the time. And I found that one of the greatest joys of having kids with special needs is that you really do have to enter their world. But if you do that and if you take the time and if you put in the hours, you get these beautiful moments um, of connection, of eye contact on the trampoline or of doing something totally ridiculous. So Anna absolutely loves face dipping. But she likes to put her face in water. So if you're willing to sit in the garden and put your face in a bowl of water and then for her to put her face in a bowl of water, you suddenly have this wonderful, it's like the tennis game gets going. You have that, that attachment. And to me, those moments are so special and so valuable and something to celebrate. Wow. Um, like we're, we're sharing, we're in sync, we're doing a dance together. That that's what you want mm. parenting to be all the time. Uh, but it's so much more, it's something I really treasure. Oh, I love that. 
Well, lastly, um, guys, you wrote The Life We Never Expected, and you wrote it in the middle of parenting young kids. And so I want people to know about that resource because as I'd said to you, my friend Whitney gifts it over and over again as soon as she gets the call that one of her friends has a child who has been diagnosed with some type of special need. And so tell us as we close out, why did you write that book? I think we felt like it's the sort of book that we would have liked to have come across when we were going through it and there wasn't one which I think was partly because we felt like there's not very many things like this that are written for people at, at that age, that people that often people will write about these things when they're 40s, 50s, 60s, looking back. And so we wanted to write about it when it was still very raw. And I think because I'd written before, so I think it felt like one of now it was actually suggested to us by an editor of ours who just sort of said, I wonder if you should write about it. And we went, no, 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 nobody wants to read that. And then about a year or two later went, you know what, maybe this could. So I think there was that. And I think that probably the very act of writing it forces you to think, you're actually speaking to yourself in part, because you're going, how would I tell someone else if I was having a conversation with me, what would I tell me that they ought to do or think or ways of holding on to God in the midst of this? And I think the process of doing that was probably both, it's a bit therapeutic in places, but you're going, but I actually don't think that was the main benefit. I think the main benefit was that it actually made you wrestle a bit with what sorts of things you think you should know and how you should respond and in doing that I think I actually put things in place in my life as a result of the writing the book that I might not have if I hadn't written it even though they were sort of vaguely there it makes you sort of think carefully about things and write them down that, that was a, a big part of the reason because of the challenges that we've been talking about of being a special needs parent and keeping up with friends let alone going to church and um, being part of a community group all those things become really challenging and I think our biggest desire for the book would be that it would make and help special needs parents to cling to Jesus and to the hope a little tighter that he's with them in the storm he's in the boat he's with them and that he's faithful and good and kind in the middle of parenting children with special needs mm. well thank you so much Andrew and Rachel for joining me today um, I really appreciate you taking the time and also for your writing Oh, you're very welcome. Oh, it's been great to be with you. Thank you so much. I hope you are walking away from today's conversation with renewed hope in the grace of God in the land of the living. Who in your life could use renewed hope today? Will you send them this episode or share it on social media? I would be so grateful. And while you're at it, send me a direct message or an email letting me know how today's conversation impacted you. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time! This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.